Today's podcast is sponsored by Grimlick's Animal Avatars and Familiars for personages of a magical or sorcerous persuasion. Wow, they really picked a name that rolls off the tongue. Grimlick's stocks creatures of all sizes, from magical cockroaches, enchanted boa constrictors, all the way through to medium-sized cats and trick bears. All of these familiars are perfectly suited for enhancing the image of... Honestly, familiars are so last century. I've been using the Scribone 8 Plus for a year now, and I'm very happy with it. What? Oh, go to Grimlick's Animal Avatars and Familiars if you want a ridiculous and glorified pet. Now get on with the podcast. The sooner you get started, the sooner it will be over. Hello, 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 and welcome to Morris's unofficial tabletop RPG talk. I am Morris, aka Russ, or Russ, aka Morris, and with me is my eccentric yet wealthy compatriot. <laughs> uh, hello, uh, it's Peter Coffey from the Southampton Guild of Roleplayers, calling in live from Sanya in Hainan, which is in China. See, said he was wealthy. I know. Uh, marry a rich woman, Russ. <laughs> marry a rich woman. It's the way forwards, I assure you. <laughs> uh, so what are you doing in China? Well, currently I'm on a sort of beach holiday in this uh, mm. charming, fairly large island, which is off the south coast of China. If you hit Vietnam and then uh, go east, then you'll hit Hainan, which is like not on the mainland, but it's still very much China. Oh, so, yeah. I did see some other pictures you posted on Facebook earlier. Yeah. And it does look really nice. <laughs> it is. It is really quite nice. Um, yeah. We're still in like sort of typhoon season, so like there's... But that means there's a bit of rain and some, like, the occasional gusts of wind. And uh, you mm. know what? I think that's fantastic because that's my perfect weather. Quite warm, bit of nice warm breezes, the occasional bit of rain to, you know, keep the temperature down. Yeah, loving it, mate. Loving it. So, so Peter, other than uh, glorious Chinese beaches. And food. And magnificent Chinese food. So uh, much what food. Has, <laughs> what has caught your eye this week? Oh, well... This week, uh, I've actually been delving quite deeply into the Zweihander rule set. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, it's because obviously they won best game of the year, best product, and I'm like, all right then, I'll have a look. Uh, yeah, I'm actually quite pleasantly surprised. So Zweihander uh, being uh, based on one of the older editions of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, yeah? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's more of a hack than a homebrew sort of thing in that. Right. He's taken, uh, Daniel Fox, the creator, has taken the basis of Warhammer. In fact, an early edition was going to be called Corehammer. And, hmm. <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, like, the old Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, or Ruffrup, as it's, uh, hmm. let us know it, uh, was very good in many respects, because I think I said on an earlier podcast I'd never played it. Not actually true. My friend Gemma actually ran it for me, and that was pretty sweet. It's, it's quite interesting. It's a percentile-based system, and... It's based on sort of a class progression rather than like a, well, I say class, it's more of a career progression. The difference yes, being, say, yeah. a class progression would be like D&D. You've got your ranger, level one, level two, level three, you get X skills at each level. Whereas a career progression, you sort of have a career and you buy skills within that career. So as you play over time, there's uh, incremental advances rather than just like one big, oh, step change, bam. Hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. Sounds similar to something that I've I've, I've worked on. <laughs> well, yeah, it does. <laughs> it does bear a very, very good resemblance to what's old is new. But obviously you use the 
D6 dice pool system, with yes, the level right. being the cap, which is, uh, as I say, what, one of the things I've always But, I, but, but I will say that early Woofworth was an influence. Yeah. So it's not, it's not it's not an accident. It's uh, uh, you know it wasn't as was Traveller and stuff like that, which also uses a career system. I just really like career systems. Um, so yeah, Zyhander caught my eye. Uh, I have been enjoying reading it. Look, looking forward to thinking about running a game in it. <laughs> okay then. What's caught your eye? Ooh. Well, conventions have caught my eye, Peter. Conventions. Not uh, just a convention, but conventions plural. Interesting. So. What are we talking about? Like fork in the left hand, knife in the right? You're eschewing this. Yes, yes, that is it. That is exactly what I. <laughs> um, so, um, sort of the convention season is kind of coming to a close now. The, the games convention season is coming to a close. Okay. Um, there's only sort of, of the big ones, there's only sort of a Essen Spiel left, I think. Mm-hmm. But we've had, we've had UK Games Expo, we've had Gen Con, we've had Origins. All of these conventions so far this year have reported um, record-breaking attendance. Again, which they did last year and the year before. Interesting. Gen Con, for example, has uh, more than 60,000 unique attendees this year. Wow. UK Games Expo had 21,500. Origins had 18,000. <laughs> okay. 18,600, in fact. Um, Essenceville hasn't happened yet, so we don't know no. We don't know what that is going to be. But, you know, but Essenceville is have... pretty damn big. It's not as big as Gen Con. I've got the figures up in front of me here. So, um, well, Essence Build doesn't um, publish its unique attendees figure. This is one in Essen in Germany. Yes, that's correct. Uh, They all report their turnstile figures. Mm -hmm. Uh, Turnstile is, say you've got a four-day pass. Yeah. And over those four days, you walk into the exhibit hall ten times. They count you ten times. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's more a measure of footfall rather than unique attendees. Yeah. Um, and all of them, except for Essen, report mm. unique attendees. I don't know why Essen misses that information out. Uh, maybe they don't collect it? I I, I, well, they must, they they must know how many badges they've sold. Yeah, 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 exactly. exactly. That's what that measures. So, um, so basically, in order, as of this year, because it positions three and four, UK Games Expo and Origins, they tend to leapfrog each other each time. Yeah, yeah. So, so every time one of them has a convention, it's slightly higher than the previous one. Mm-hmm. And they just like... You know, step yeah, past yeah. each other each time. So uh, Gen Con mm-hmm. uh, it had uh, 223,000 turnstile with uh, over 60,000 unique attendees. Goodness. That's a lot of people. That's a but lot Essen of people. Spiel, uh, last year, so we don't know what this year's figures are going to be, uh, it had 174,000 turnstile. Wow. Which is a lot of people. Uh, UK Games Expo, 39,000 with 21,700 unique attendees. It's now the third largest dedicated tabletop gaming convention in the world, would you believe? Wow. That's... Uh, Origins Game Fair. Yeah. It's, I, I'm, it's I'm just sort of being blown thing. away by just like the numbers we're talking about here. This is like really, really an army of geeks. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Wow, just, um, so Origins yeah. Game Fair, 70,765 turnstile, uh, caused by 18,648 unique attendees. Mm-hmm. Um, there, is, there is one dark horse in there, just packs unplugged. Which is oh, yeah, yeah. fairly, it's, it's fairly new. It's about the same size, I think, as Origins, but there aren't really any sort of solid figures. There's certainly no unique attendee. I think there's only been one last year, 2017. Yeah. But so forgive my, my ignorance. Pax is that related to the Penny Arcade people? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, oh. a, it's a new, it's a new uh, uh, convention they've started, dedicated to sort of, you know, tabletop gaming as opposed to video games and stuff, which. 
Because, you know, like the PAX East and the PAX yeah. West and all that sort of stuff, they've, yeah. they've got a video. big, heavy video game presence. So yeah. um, PAX Unplugged is their new tabletop gaming one. Started last year yeah. um, with a turnstile of 45,000. So, you know, about the same sort of region as UK Games Expo, Origins Game Fair, but no reported unique attendees. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's what I spotted this week. Lots and lots and lots more people attending conventions. Um, I just wanted to drop in a quick note about the size of some other conventions that were that are not um, tabletop gaming related. Because okay. um, I imagine some listeners will be saying, hey, what about this convention? What about that convention? So those are the largest dedicated tabletop gaming conventions. But also, if you start talking about other types of conventions, like uh, yep. Luca Comic and Games in Italy, mm. that is like 500,000 attendees. Comic Con has about 200,000. Yeah. The sort of non-tabletop specific ones dwarf, like even Gen Con. Yeah. Well, shall we do the news? Yes, let's. Oh, hang on. There's somebody at the door. I will okay. just be a second. That means I also have to go via the Great Hound. <laughs> Godspeed. <laughs> Godspeed, Mr. Morrissey. Godspeed. I, sh- I shall return shortly. I have a package, and I wouldn't... I would normally, wouldn't normally do this right here, but... Um, <gasps> Are we going to do an unboxing? Yes, it says FedEx on it. Um, yeah, but it also says Wizards of the Coast. Ah! Sorry. I don't know what this Screen is. intensifies. What's in the box first? We have... Ooh, a bubble wrap. Oh. Wow, look at that. Can you see that on the... Adventures outlined. Adventures outlined. Yeah, illustrations by Todd James, Dungeons and Dragons, colouring book. <gasps> wow. Is it a colouring book? It is a colouring book. book. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. <laughs> wow. Oh, I can't, I can't see that properly, but rest assured, my, my jealousy is suitably peaked. Should we have a quick look at it then? Since it's since it's literally just arrived live. <laughs> He's not getting a lot more topical than this, to be fair. This is pretty topical, isn't You're it? You're yeah. welcome, so, wizards. We're happy to have a look. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So so what have we got? We got a square colouring book. I don't know how many pages that has, but it's sort of We could well. weigh it. <laughs> to weigh out how many pages it has. <laughs> that is so tempting. Because <laughs> that is the easiest way to determine how many pages a book has. Of, of course, it's one of the things, like, you weigh books to determine how many pages they have, and you lick them in order to absorb the role-play knowledge contained therein. That is These how you use books. Um, so, yeah, so there's, so there's no page numbers here, so I don't, know, I don't actually know how many how many pages this is. How, yeah, how thick so is it? Just, about. Uh, that, that thick? I don't know. Um, uh, about a centimetre? Less than that. Um, yeah. Let me, let me put out, have I got a ruler? I have a ruler. <laughs> Uh-oh. Science. Science is about to <laughs> happen science. again on the podcast. <laughs> so it is. I make that eight millimeters. Oh, could we have that in imperial as well for those of us listening in old-fashioned measurements? <laughs> um, I don't know, quarter of an inch. Quarter, quarter of, of an inch. inch. Let's say quarter yeah. of an inch. About, about a centimeter by a quarter of an inch. Yeah. So we've got a book on. You open it up, and uh, on each each spread basically on the right hand side you've got a black and white line drawing ready to be coloured in and on the left you have a description for example this one says duel in the murky wood when Uh. sir albrecht and dastardly dave faced off for a duel the last (laughs) thing they thought they would have to deal with was a gorgon after that they became (laughs) lifelong friends oh is this a story Uh, can i just say that was that was dastardly dave hmm and so Uh, so the next yes. one, um, Sprecken Z Grell, uh, Mad Maud, 
Yasmina the Swift and Frida <laughs> Firesword were almost to the treasure room when they were ambushed. Too bad ambushed. none of them spoke the squawking, shrill language of the Grell. Oh, so that's why it's Reckon's Grell. Nice Reckon's Grell. Yeah. Do you want one uh, more? I suppose, I, I suppose they could put a sign say, Not Otro Sapple was square, lucky. And why not? Uh. Well, I like this one. Ode oh. to a Lich. So on the right-hand side, oh. um, we've got a picture of what looks like, well, a lich, I guess, on some stairs with lots and lots of skeletons around him. There's a little poem he's got. There's nothing more foul than a lich, even a belching witch. Covered in pitch, stuck in a ditch, it's not as foul as a lich. A lovely little limerick. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed He's that. He's got a certain something to it, yes. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we could have a limerick competition. Ooh. Ooh. I have the best ideas. <laughs> My best, something worst. Actually, I, I like this. A limerick about Ooh. Dr. Victor von Wolfenhausen-Smythe. Right, right, listeners. This is, let's, let's do the competition before the news then, shall we? Because we've got some entries yes. from last week. Oh, yes. A competition okay. time. Okay. What's the competition question from last week? The competition question last week yes. was who did who did the good doctor climb Mount Everest with? Was the question, and uh, we have got seven entries this year, this week, seven not this year. entries, seven <laughs> entries. Uh, so Carl White. Oh, thanks for listening, Carl. Uh, he says, "Hi guys, everybody knows the good doctor was accompanied on his Everest excursion by William Shakespeare. Historical fact." Um, he then goes on to say, "Read dread." Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Mm. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh. oh, still just waiting for those approvals to come through. Oh. Right, so the next person was Kian Hamzai. Oh, thanks for listening, Kian. Uh, so he says, hey, it's me again. For some reason, last week, my account name had switched. My actual name is Kian Hamzai. Before you pronounce it wrong, it's Kion Hamzi. <laughs> okay. Too late, my friend. Too late. <laughs> Kion Hamzi, we apologise. <laughs> <laughs> we apologise for us. It's okay. He can't pronounce anybody's name. I'm he, very, he very, I'm very, very sorry, Kion Hamzi. He pronounced my name properly, but only after extensive beatings have been administered. <laughs> but, but Kion does, I'm yes. pleased to say... Accurately and correctly say, uh, Victor von Wolfhausen Smythe climbed Mount Everest with William Shakespeare. Have a great rest of your day. Good work, Keon. Like it. Very nice. Next was, oh no, that wasn't one. Okay. This one. (laughs) (laughs) That was spot. This one. Uh, Tim (laughs) McNeil. (laughs) Thanks for listening, Tim. Assuming you're Uh, not spam. Right, Tim McNeil either is not spam, or this is incredibly, incredibly coincidentally accurate spam. We just don't know. I suspect that Tim is indeed a real person, because he says that the esteemed doctor of improbability climbed Mount Everest with one William Shakespeare. Love the show. Thanks for making it. Hey, but thanks for listening. Uh. (laughs) Next. Yes. We have Mark Rosenthal. Thanks for listening. Russ and Peter... Dr. Von Wolfhausen-Smythe claimed Mount Everest with William Shakespeare. The bard looks so distinguished once he grew that beard. Mm. Uh, I believe the good doctor is as keen with his fashion sense as he is with game design. Rosenthal rhymes with hall or wall, not hal or pal. Again. So Rosenthal. <laughs> yes, <basically>. again, bur- <laughs> again burying the lead there. But, um. <laughs> so I'm very sorry, Mark. <laughs> I mispronounced it- your name all the way through that. 
so our next entrance is from Alex Slotkin. Thanks for listening, Alex. If that's your real name. No, well, I'm fairly that. sure I pronounced that one correctly. Uh, he, he says, um, I am a long-time EN World reader, but first-time podcast listener. Upon seeing the topic of your latest episode, What's an RPG Freelancer Worth? I felt compelled to check it out, and I am so glad I did. I really appreciated the detailed advice and valuable resources from someone who has been in the business for such a long time. Quite the mother load for an aspiring RPG writer like me. I also enjoyed the witty banter and recap of the latest RPG news. Who knew we had witty banter? I think it must have got us confused with another podcast. Mm. <laughs> no, thank um, you so much. That's pretty nice for you to say. <laughs> yeah, he's just valuable resor- valuable resources. That can't be us. Nah, confused, confused. It doesn't sound like me. But anyhow, we'll, onto we'll the business we'll at hand. Run, he run. says, yes, uh, "You yes. asked who did Doctor Wolfhausen Smythe climb Mount Everest with? The yes. answer, of course, is the OG Bard himself, Mister William Shakespeare." Um, I imagine it must have been difficult reciting sonnets at such a high altitude, what with the oxygen-poor air and all, but there you have it. Uh, uh, this one is from Daryl Masson. Daryl Masson? Okay. Mm. It's not, it's not Daryl our producer in disguise, is it? No. Well, okay. I don't know. <laughs> you can disguise yourself with an email, but Daryl Masson. Um, he says, oh, he starts with an interesting question. Uh, hello, uh, Morris and company. Does your party have a collective group name yet? All proper adventuring companies need one. Interesting. We should think on this. You should. Uh, but moving on to the actual question, yes. the esteemed Dr. Victor von Wolfhausen Smythe climbed Mount Everest with Shakespeare. My knowledge of the sonnets they composed is unfortunately lacking, but could probably be identified by listening to them while deprived of oxygen, as Shakespeare most likely was. The esteemed doctor has no need of trifles such as air to breathe, and thus would not have been affected by Everest, or, in that matter, the moon. Uh- Thank it's you almost like the guys met him. <laughs> I know, right? If we've been around as long as the good doctor has, you will meet a lot of people. So it sounds that like it's one of those heroes that has permeated the national subconscious. That is probably true. Uh, so, uh, um, would you like to write uh, I'd love to. Four. Four. One, two, three, four. Tim McNeil. Tim hey! McNeil. Tim McNeil, you are this week's winner. I will get your book right out to you. And the question for this week, <gasps> prize will be... I am going to send the uh, winner of this week's competition a copy of Adventures in Middle-Earth, <gasps> which is the D&D 5th edition version of Cubicle 7's The One Ring Game. So if you want to play D&D in Middle-Earth, this is the book for you. Yeah, so the competition question was a little different this time. We have a challenge. And the challenge is to write a limerick. A limerick. Featuring Dr. Victor von Wolfhausen Smythe. Oh, and we will so choose we will choose the one we like the best. Please send your entries to Morris Podcast at gmail.com. That's M O R U S Podcast at gmail.com. All entries must be received by Midnight GMT on Sunday, August 19th. That's the uh, competition this week. Write a limit featuring the esteemed Doctor. And the Fantastic. winner of the competition will get a copy of Adventures in Middle-Earth for D&D 5th edition. And now, part three of the Morris's unofficial tabletop RPG talk interview with the legendary Dr. Victor von Wolfenhausen Smythe. I was just wondering about whether you have a new book in the pipeline. Yes! <laughs> 
My memoir. Your memoir, yes, the 15th memoir. Yes, yes. And what uh, highlights are you going to include in it? It's obviously the trip to the moon, which is very exciting. Yes. And you've got a trip. I, I think you did some work on a submersible exhibition. Yes, indeed. And do you recall when I jumped the Grand Canyon on a bicycle? Who could forget? It was on all the major networks. Indeed, yes. So uh, I, I covered the training regimen that underwent in order to achieve that feat. A lot of people, some more sceptical than I, have said that it would be an impossible feat without the aid of artificial stimulants. Do you know what the secret was? No, please tell. Spinach. I ate lots and lots of spinach. Lots of spinach. So what we're saying is you're, you might actually have been the inspiration for the original Popeye as well. Yes, I believe they based the character on me. I can certainly see the resemblance. Right, thank you. It's the corn cob pipe. It does everything <laughs> for you. Uh, so Dr. Victor von wolfhausen Smythe, we've talked about uh, your latest book. We've talked about your uh, previous travels. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. So any plans for the future? Plans, you say? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, obviously I am a spontaneous type. It's very true. You've conquered the worlds of music, literature. What's there left you Indeed. Do? I plan to star in a couple more major motion pictures. Fantastic. Uh, perhaps do a play or two upon the Broadway. Excellent, excellent. Maybe bring it over to the West End. Important. I'm going to have some more travelling to do. Yeah, I can I can hardly believe that. Where? What's your next place for your travel itinerary? I was thinking of revisiting Toril. I'll be a Toril. Albia Toril can't sound familiar. Uh, that is where that uh, Waterdeep city I mentioned earlier was located. Fantastic. Yes. So I thought I would take a trek around Albia Toril. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I thought I might visit places such as Candlekeep and Cholt, where I understand dinosaurs be. Uh, absolutely. Cholt is famous for its dinosaur races. And Candlekeep has a lot of books. Possibly you could take some of yours along. And they might be interesting. I imagine they would sell very well. Very well. I also wish to visit a Dragonspear Castle. An evocative name, if nothing else. Yes. Have you ever fought a dragon? Of course. Oh, I'm sorry. uh, Could you tell me a bit more about it? I've never actually seen one myself. I was on Kryn, you know. Mm. The world of the Dragon Lance. Yeah. Uh, I was engaged in a mighty war and I came face to face with a mighty green dragon. That must have been terrifying for me. Indeed, I took up a dragon lance and I speared it through the heart. Oh, swift, decisive action. A hallmark of yours, it's true. The dragon gasped, expired. Uh, what did you do then? I took its head home and mounted it upon my wall, of course. Well, it's certainly a, a traditional way of doing things. Yes, it's a mighty ornament. It looks fantastic alongside the second head of Tiamat. I mean, some people have said that dragons are an endangered species. Well, they are well. I'm around. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all we've got time for now. But um, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Victor von Wolfgang. You're welcome, young man. And hopefully at some point you can join us on the show for future tales of your shenanigans and adventures. Yes, I would love to. It has been great fun. So, shall we do the news? Let's do the news, yeah. It's uh, post-GenCon week, so as always, uh, news tends to slow down. Last week was quite a news-heavy week. This week, not so much. But there is news, though. First thing, uh, the Starfinder role-playing game 
They're yeah. bringing out, Pazer are bringing out a Starfinder beginner box. Oh, nice. That's an excellent call. Beginner boxes are very helpful for getting people into the hobby. Well, the Pathfinder beginner box was gorgeous. I think it's one of the best Star Trek products that I've ever seen. It's absolutely yeah. lovely. Um, and so if the Starfinder beginner box is similar, then um, you know, I, I'm definitely going to get my hands on that. Starfinder beginner box, um, it says yes. it's going to be a self-contained game, streamlined rules, similar to the Pathfinder beginner box. Mm-hmm. Um, there is not much detail as the box is still in development, but it will include mm. separate books for GMs and players, stand-up pawns, dice, maps, stuff like that. Um, no retail price out yet, but the Pathfinder version was $34.99, so I don't yeah. know whether I assume it will be a similar price. And it's expected in spring 2019. Fantastic. Well, that will be fantastic news for the uh, nascent start find the community that's kicking around and i think they will probably want a bit of extra help because obviously you've got pathfinder 2 coming out as well so yeah mm. uh, moving on with the news uh joe manganello manganello mangani manganello joe m Mang- like call <laughs> before he, you manganello his name <laughs> he appeared on uh, an american show called the late show with stephen colbert mm, uh, yeah. and spent pretty much like 10 minutes Talking about D and D with him. Nice. Because <laughs> um, he's got I, his uh, clothing line coming out, doesn't he? Like, yeah, I think, I, that's, like that. that's essentially why he went on. I believe to promote that because uh, I've got a picture of it here, and he's there wearing his Death Saves sort of shirt. Um, apparently, and, and you can see this on YouTube. Um, yeah, yeah, they just sat there and started talking about you know D and D races and classes and adventures and they, uh, how they both prefer rolling characters three D six in order and stuff like that. Apparently, you can see that up on the uh, Late Show's YouTube channel. Oh, 3D6 and all that. That's a hot button issue, I'm afraid. 3D6 and all that. I'm like, nah, mate, nah, mate. Six rolls at the start of your game should not determine the success of your everything else for the rest of the game. Just, just no. 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 I think I'm it should be just one. I think it should just be one roll. You should take a D6, roll that, mm. and that is basically how the rest of the campaign is going to go for you. <laughs> With no deviations. Oh, I, I, oh, I, I didn't realise you're such a Blades in the Dark fan. <laughs> <laughs> what else do we have uh i think there was quite an interesting opinion piece on ian world about 3d printers yes because obviously there have been like several kickstarters for one of those uh i know my wife has been waiting she informed me for over three years for one kickstarter to deliver for the 3d printer mm. uh maybe we should segue effortlessly from those into talking about the topic of the week which is talking about Kickstarters. Kickstarters, well, 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 yeah. well. Clearly, some Kickstarters are more successful than others. That is a true statement. It is a true statement. <laughs> what can we say about Kickstarters? I from the have only been involved from the consumer end. Do you remember, like last week, or was it the week before, where I mentioned the uh, tabletop gaming Kickstarters in the first yeah. half of twenty eighteen um, yes. made up thirty percent of everything that Kickstarter did, dollar wise. Mm. Yeah, it's like ludicrous. Yeah, so many of them. Massive, yeah. massive. I mean, a lot of that is board games rather than role-playing games because uh, board, uh, board games and miniatures both do really, yeah, really, really, right. really well. Uh, role-playing games oh. do do well, yeah. but not not in the same league generally as board games do. There's a lot of RPG kickstarts out there, but for me personally, I've um, I found like yeah, the lengths of time that it can take to get one out. There are some by very reputable companies that have take that took so long it became something of a yeah. standard I mean, it, change. Yeah. It, do, it does vary a lot and it is a bit it is a bit hit or miss on that. I mean, I I definitely have 
backed some Kickstarters that have taken years to fulfill. Others I've backed and they fulfilled like within two months. So, you know. But I think, I think you actually use Kickstarter as a way to generate pre-orders because you only have, you only announce Kickstarter when you literally have the product in your hands. As I remember. Me, me, you mean? Yeah, 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 so I do, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so when I... Well, your publishing hat. Yeah, yeah. When I run a Kickstarter, uh, we basically have a rule here at EN Publishing where if it's on the Kickstarter page, it exists. I physically got it in my hands. So when the Kickstarter ends, there's no way that there's like a year to wait while this thing is being sort of written and illustrated and all this sort of stuff. There's no stretch goals that are going to delay it. No. The thing already exists and sent straight out. I find it a little bit exciting myself because I, I I sort of like the I like the sort of um you're buying into like sort of the vaporware where you say, Oh, oh yeah, sure. Yeah. And and definitely and definitely there's an element if you do it like that, you lose out on the excitement of the stretch goal thing. And you definitely lose out possibly on, you know, potential pleasures and money and stuff like that. But it's it swings and roundabouts you do get to fulfil your Kickstarter quickly and move on. Rather than It's promises. Yeah, rather than having this thing sort of like dragging on for months or mm. sometimes years in some cases so you know like i definitely put, head. i've got a list here of the uh largest rpg kickstarters mm-hmm. so these are rpgs really? so uh this is not board games it is not miniatures it's not accessories it's actual rpgs or rpg supplements nice. i was just looking at it and i was just looking at how many have um exceeded a, a half million dollar mark <laughs> So we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten Kickstarters for RPGs have right. um, exceeded half a million dollars. So we're talking about five million dollars worth of Kickstarter for these ten RPGs, basically. Over. Uh, well, actually, considerably more because the top one uh, did yeah. two point one million on its own. That was Strongholds and Streaming by Matt Colville, and the second one by John Wick, Seventh Sea Second Edition, did one point three million dollars on its own. So. You know, that's three and a half million just there in the top two. Wow. Uh, Numenera 2, Discovery and Destiny did 845,000. So that's approaching the yeah. million dollar. Uh, Deluxe Exalted 3rd Edition, uh, 684,000. I'll put my hands up to that Deluxe one. Deluxe Mage, The Ascension, 672,000. Uh, Monty Cook Games, Invisible Sun, 664,000. That was one expensive Kickstarter. Do you remember that one? The big box. Uh, no, Never even saw it. Oh, now this is... I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't afford to back this one myself. Um, so basically, oh. the uh, there was the lowest pledge level, the smallest pledge, yeah. was $197. Yeah. That, was sm- <laughs> that was the smallest pledge. It was just... It's just okay. this, I mean, it's this gorgeous big black box full of stuff. And it's super high quality. You get low... I mean, you get... You get, yeah. you get $197 worth of stuff, certainly. But um, it's... Just not, it wasn't a cheap Kickstarter. But anyway, uh, it made wow. um, $664,000. Robert E. Howard's Conan role-playing game for Modifius, uh, 627000 Call of Cthulhu, 7th edition, 561000 uh, The original Numenera Kickstarter for Monty Cook Games was the first to ever pass 500k, role-playing game, right. to ever pass 500k. Uh, did 517000 so they're, they're the ones that have beaten half a million dollars. Wow. Smashing it several times over in some cases. Yeah. And there's tons and tons that have beaten 100 grand. Mm. So Kickstarter so, is so important to the industry at the moment, I think. Um, there is sort of two at the moment that I can think of offhand, which have definitely gone past the quarter of a million, which is the Expanse one and Monty Cook Games, uh, your best game ever. I think it, I'm not sure what that's done, but it's 
certainly shooting up there. I'm going to put my hand up to that one as well. <laughs> oh, you, you've, you've backed that one, have you? Uh, which one, the Expanse yeah. or Monty Cook Games? Uh, no, actually, I went in for the best game ever. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, because it just sounded like it was going to have so much information for GMs, all these different articles from yeah. like a wide variety of sources. I'm running a games club, so mm. I sort of feel like I have to maybe know something about mm. it. Mm-hmm. So what did you want to talk yeah. about, about Kickstarters then, Peter? Did you have like questions about them or well, any well, topics yeah. you wanted ha- to delve into or, or what? Yeah, ha- how do you run a Kickstarter? I mean, do you, obviously you can, I mean, what, do you just sign up and you're good to go? What, what makes a good Kickstarter? A sprinkle of magic fairy dust, a little tap dance. I know, Maybe not, you could demonstrate those hats off to the listeners at home. <laughs> um, yeah, well, all right. From the from the publishing end, then, yeah. So, yeah, I, I assume that our listeners know what a Kickstarter is. It was very, very quickly. Do you want to very quickly sort of recap what one is? I, I assume well, they yeah. all do, but just in case there's one out there that doesn't. Well, well, Kickstarter is in fact a bit of a term like Hoover, in the sense that it's actually an example of crowdfunding. The most popular is the Kickstarter website. But there are other crowdfunding websites that do exist, um, mm-hmm. which frequently get people to subscribe to them. Essentially, what these crowdfunding websites do is they allow you to advertise to people that you have a product that you wish to get funded. The crowd can chip in at various what they call pledge levels of like a mm-hmm. dollar, or in the case of very expensive Kickstarters, $197, and anywhere in between. And or once it's higher. reached a pledge... Oh, indeed, yes, you can go higher. There's... I think no limits apart from what your wallet will allow to how much you can pledge to a Kickstarter uh, or other crowdfunding platform. And with this, it will, once they've reached the pledge level, then the funding is secured. The crowdfunding website takes typically a small percentage of the fees to uh, pay for its own costs in running. And then the creative types get on with creating. Hmm. Uh, things we talked about included stretch goals, which is where they say, well, we need 30000 to make a role-playing game book and say black and white, but if you give us $90,000, we'll make this full colour, hardcover, etc. Yeah. And those are, of course, not numbers to be relied on because I'm just like literally plucking them out of somewhere. Yeah, well, but stretch yeah. goals are basically milestones where the creators agree exactly. to do additional... Yeah. Yeah. It allows them to create a nicer product. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, I think one of the things to bear in mind when you're running a Kickstarter, and this is important, um, is that running a Kickstarter is a full-time job. Right. You can't, if right. you just start a Kickstarter, then sit back and wait a month mm-hmm. and then go and see what's happened to it, the odds are not a lot will have happened to it. Mm-hmm. You have to yeah. be out there every single day promoting it, working hard on it, communicating with backers, spreading the word. A lot of marketing giving giving out previews and stuff. I mean, Kickstarter itself is one of the best marketing platforms you could possibly have in this industry. It's fantastic. It creates so much awareness for your product, but only if you use it right. You've got to do the work. You can't just whack something up there and expect Kickstarter to do all the work for you. You have to then use that. You have to work hard and do it every every single day. And build and work through mm. your social networks and so forth to yeah. get it promoted. Exactly, exactly. Uh, what, one thing that I had, because, you know, um, I run a tabletop role-playing game news website. And uh, obviously, there's so many um, RPG Kickstarters that we get news about them coming in constantly. Um, one thing that, one trend that does happen, and which is basically one of the biggest mistakes you can get, you can make for the Kickstarter is, we'll see people sending in emails, news about their Kickstarter a week before it's about to end. 
and it's not on track to fund. And then they've suddenly oh. thought, oh, maybe I should do some marketing. And so they'll send you an email oh. and say, could you help us get the word out? And at that point, you're thinking, it's too bloody late, mate. I mean, you know, you should have sent us this email a month before your Kickstarter launch, not a week before it fails. So, yeah. you know, your marketing starts before your Kickstarter. Yes. Like, get it going, keep it going. You talk, you, you, talk, you, talk, yeah, you talk about it. I mean, like Green Running with their Expanse Kickstarter, the recent one, they had a mm-hmm. countdown leading up to it. Um, most oh. most companies that you know are experienced at this, um, they tell you in advance when the Kickstarter is going to launch. They get you get to sign up for reminders and stuff, so that they get a big successful launch right at the beginning. Yes, because yeah. one of the, one of the other things about Kickstarter is it tends to be kind of a, a self fulfilling prophecy. There's a pile on effect, isn't there? Yeah. So if you have a yeah. good launch the chances are you will have a decent Kickstarter. If you have a poor launch, I mean, it's not an absolute rule, but, you know, uh, g- generally speaking, um, you know, you really do want a good good launch if you can get one. And that means making yeah. sure people know it's coming and making sure that they sign up straight away. Ideally, you want to, f- you want to try and, like, almost meet your pledge. What's it called? Fulfill your pledge goals? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you, you want to basically fund. That's the word I'm looking for. Yes. What's the fund in the first week or so? Right, everything right, else is people. Think, yeah, you should be funding in the first couple of days. Yeah, and depending, yeah. I mean, see, depending what the what the thing is and how what high your thing is. Yeah. But if it's for like a book or something, yeah, you should be funding mm. pretty quick. Yeah, generally speaking, it's like and, uh, cheap too. Yeah. yeah, usually I tend to fund in a couple of days, which is kind of the target I go for. And then that means that it changes from being more less of a gamble. I mean, you're not actually gambling your money though. Because no money is actually taken from you unless it's successfully funded. Yes, that is correct. That is correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's only when people... It, but basically, when you see a funded Kickstarter, I think psychologically, it says to me anyway, if I pledge money, I will definitely get what I'm like mm. asking for. Well, one, one yeah. interesting um, thing about... Because of the way we run Kickstarters and we have the product already there, it means we can set our sort of funding goal a little lower anyway. Because let's face it, we've we've already paid for the book. We're more recouping costs at this point, so we've got to sell it. So you know, it's not. It's, in our case, it's not even a gamble that the thing is going to exist. It's going to. It has to. I mean, it already does. So you know, you can set you can set the funding goal a little bit lower. Um, I, I find that that's helpful. That's a sort of good tip for running a Kickstarter. Going back to the beginning, how do you work out how much to charge for a Kickstarter? First thing you need to know is how much does it cost to print your book. Or make your book. Um, if you, yeah, if you haven't got it already, then uh, how much does it cost to write your book, illustrate your book, lay out your book, print your book? How much does all that come to? That is your absolute minimum amount. Yeah. Shipping costs typically are added on top of that, so you don't have to worry about that right now because uh, a Kickstarter, you, you make your pledge and then it adds shipping costs on top. So you do have to make sure you get the shipping costs correct because some Kickstarters, especially when they're sending out to a lot of um, a lot of people, have ended up going in the red. Because yeah, they underestimated, they underestimated shipping costs. And bear, and bear in mind that the longer you leave between the end of a Kickstarter and shipping, yeah. the higher the chances that the shipping costs will have drastically changed. Yeah, the US Postal Service, from what I've read, not as I say being an expert in the field, what I've read, they tend to whack those shipping costs up on a regular basis. Uh, certainly, shipping um, from the US to uh mm. to a non-us country Best can be world. very yes. very expensive um for example um i can't remember who it was uh was it Pelgrane press i can't remember who it was they found it was actually cheaper at one uh-huh. point um rather than shipping from the us to canada 
Yeah. It was cheaper to ship from the US, a pallet from the US, to the UK, yeah. and then ship the books out to Canada. So shipping can be quite the, the sort of landmine. You've got to be really, really careful and look at your costs there. And you've got no Perfect. control over that whatsoever. I mean, you know, Kickstarter backers will complain about shipping costs. There's nothing you can do about it. You've got no control over it. Yeah, shipping costs, that's a major issue that you have to consider, has all the other costs. We talked about in our previous podcast on how much is an RPG freelancer worth mm-hmm. and essentially has a new pub- publisher. That's what I'd be looking at. I'd be looking at, I've got to pay for this many words and this many illustrations. Mm-hmm. So, and obviously soft cover versus hard cover, there's different sorts of binding to consider as mm-hmm. well. Uh, so, what, what, what should I go for? Should I go for like the products of my dreams, like the full hardback, full color, uh, all bells, all single bells embossed thing, or should I try for something a bit less ambitious first? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's because it's a Kickstarter, in theory, you, you set the goals correctly so that you only fund if you raise the money to achieve that particular goal so you can you can be as ambitious as you like i mean you want to get your sort of print quotes from your various printers go for the best print quote you can get a lot of people just go print on demand uh which is a very easy convenient way to do it so essentially you'll end up just like uploading a spreadsheet of backers to drive through rpg and then just sending them all out on mass and making one payment but the disadvantage with that is while it's very easy very convenient um you don't have to basically ship or warehouse anything yourself you know that's all nice and easy uh, it does cost a lot more mm, so really? uh, yeah so a print a print quote for a, a sort of a main sort of offset printer um is going to be a fraction of the price of a print on demand book and the more you order you know the, the cheaper and cheaper and cheaper those print quotes get right so if you've got like ten thousand uh, copies of a book then print on demand probably not the way you want to go yeah so yeah or, for example you've got ten thousand copies of book print on demand you might be paying sort of like ten dollars per book to print it whereas with yeah. a sort of like uh, offset printer in i don't know lithuania or somewhere i don't know where you might be paying two dollars right it makes a That's massive a massive difference. difference that is a big difference but that, that does mean you have to you have to order ten thousand books you have to store ten thousand yes. books and you have to ship ten thousand books right interesting which otherwise you wouldn't have to do. Mm. It depends on... Um, I mean, with uh, your Kickstarters, have you found that PDF or actual hard copies of the books are more popular? Uh, it's hard to say because PDFs, obviously, they always get a lot of people at that tier because usually it's a, it's a much, much cheaper tier. It's usually like $10 or something, yes. maybe $20. Yeah. But it's, it's usually a much cheaper tier and, and people are a lot more willing to just like dip their toe in and just like, ah, 10 bucks, why not? Let's give it a shot. It looks quite nice. And when you get when you get up to sort of higher sort of pledge levels, and you're sort of talking like fifty or sixty dollars for a book, people, you know, especially if they're doing that is what it costs. Well, especially, well, especially yeah. if they if they're fulfilling via print on demand or something like that, it can cost oh, an yeah. awful lot yeah. to to produce a book. Uh, PDF products definitely do very well. Yeah. I, I think basically these days there's no reason not to have a print version of your product because print on demand exists. Because even if just one okay. person backs that, then still it's print on demand, so you might as well just do it. We, what we haven't touched on that actually at all is the initial setup. So to you said to market your book is very important. Mm-hmm. So one would look at things like, I've seen that there tends to be a lot of videos involved with Kickstarters. Kickstarter says that uh, you have an 80% more chance of funding if you have a Ooh. video. That's what, from a min-maxing perspective, as good RPGs should be, controversial i know <laughs> so I, I, I i'm not sure how they come up with that figure i assume they basically look at yeah. all of the kickstarters which ones had videos which ones hadn't and how many of each funded 
I guess is how they did that. In my experience, I don't personally think it's made a lot of difference to my Kickstarters. Uh, but I couldn't tell. I mean, I mean I've, some have had videos, some haven't. They've all performed similarly. But who knows? Uh, the ones without videos might have done better. Who knows? How could I possibly tell? But, you know, it seems to be. Uh, I mean, do you watch the videos? I usually don't. No. I'm not on a Kickstarter. <laughs> it's very, very rare that I watch the videos on a Kickstarter. I find that people talk, and this makes as a shot shoot, far too slowly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. If you're not jabbering and jamming all your words together like this in some sort of a massive stream of data flow, uh, stream of consciousness, stupid jabber thought, it, it, it's all just a bit slow for me, really. Oh, yeah, talking, uh, that's why I like things like zero punctuation. Uh, talking who talks yeah, talking on camera or on microphone is really, really hard to do. We're, I don't see no reason not to believe them. So maybe we're outliers yes. and we don't watch them, but clearly some people do. So yeah, do it. Do it. Do a video. Why not? We've talked about getting the Kickstarter set up. I assume that's just a matter of going on the website and uploading files. Yeah, so you go onto Kickstarter, you start a new campaign, um, you upload a header image for it, you give it a title, you give it a tagline, you type in a great big section, which is the about section, which most people tend to sort of put some graphics in and some nice fancy headers they've had made up and, you know, they show a preview of the book in there, a description of it, some information, stuff like that, some links. I mean, the more, the more effort you put in there... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That the more pays, confidence you're building in people. That pays dividends. Well, if it's, not, it's not even just... Two paragraphs, you've got typos. It's not even just that. That's all people see. That's literally mm. all people see. If that... That is your product that, right there. Yeah, that is your product right there on the Kickstarter page. That page has to be as perfect as you can make it. Because that yeah. is that is what they're going to look at and decide based on that in front of them. Yeah. And the chances yeah. are they probably might not click through to other links or watch videos or do any further research. Um, they're gonna, it's going to be what's in front of them is going to make them decide whether yeah. or not to press that button and make a pledge. Yeah, essentially. Like if, it, if you're not wowing them on that page, mm. yeah, get back. So you're going to make your page look because professional, well done. Don't have typos on your page. Don't ramble. Oh, Be concise. <laughs> Make sure some people have yeah. looked at it before you launch, and you know, giving you their opinion, things like that. Uh, so once, so once you've done all that, you set the uh, pledge levels and the rewards, which you've correctly calculated out beforehand using some, you know, spreadsheet or something like that. You've done all your pricing. Yeah. And you know how much your unit cost is. Although obviously that will depend on how many things you do. So. I guess there's a certain amount yeah. of guesswork there. Yeah. Well, obviously, about how many yeah. obviously that's assuming out. you're producing the entire project from scratch rather than having having it yeah. already. So you're also paying for the writing. You're, also, oh, you're yeah. paying to create the product from scratch. So writing, art, yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Or in, the, or in the case of the way we do it, we've already basically paid for it and we're recouping the money instead. Right. You also have to pay like for your... in-world products are guaranteed, yeah. Yeah, you also have to, you know, pay for your time as well. Running a Kickstarter is a full-time job and you deserve to get paid for it. Otherwise, why, you know... Why, why, why are you doing this? Good point. Um, Good point. So you, you don't want you know, to be free. You're paying for your time too. So you come up with your pledge levels. You put you put those in. You fill in a little sort of uh, risks and challenges section at the end, which Kickstarter insists you fill, fill out. And usually you just say, oh, the challenges might be, I don't know, a meteor might hit the earth and I might not be able to deliver or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just sort of acknowledge what, you're supposed to just acknowledge what risks or challenges there might be in sort of creating this thing. Yeah. But it allows people to make a, a, an educated guess. Like if you say, well, I've never actually created or written a book before. Mm. I've never worked with a publisher and I'll be building a team together. Then you're sort of like putting your sort of, your, your excuses at front. You might not fund, but if you do fund, people will, will not be able to turn around and say, well, you know, where's my book? 
six months after things because you're like well i said here it's going to take some time to come out well that's where that's where when you set the rewards you set an estimated delivery date Ah, so one, okay. one thing with Kickstarter is you have got to be so clear on when you intend to deliver and you've got to communicate it with your backers because that is the thing which makes people angry more than anything else. People don't mind waiting for something, yeah. usually, if they know that it's being done, how long they have to wait, and you're communicating with them. It's when, you know, yeah. it's, it's when those Kickstarters that they just go quiet or they just keep on going, it's coming soon or it'll be much month and it isn't sort of thing. Um, so that's oh, the that's the thing that drives yeah. people that drives people nuts. Okay, so you've done your Kickstarter. There are different sorts now. I I heard talk of a short Kickstarter. A quick starter, they call it. Quick starter. So I, came, I came up with this. I see. I came up with this idea ages and ages and ages oh. ago. I was I, oh, yeah, yeah. actually I was talking to um, Monty Cook about it at UK Games Expo about oh, yeah. two or three years ago. We were discussing the idea of like how a sort of super quick seven day Kickstarter would work. And I was, I was saying that I'd always wanted to try that because one of, one of the fundamental truths about Kickstarter is usually you run a campaign for a month and in the first three or four days, you'll make about a third of your funding. In the last three or four days, you'll make about a third of your funding and the whole of the rest of the month, you'll make about a third of your funding. So the whole middle period, you get a really exciting beginning period, really exciting end period and this really long flat period in the middle where, so where, where, almost, the where, where almost nothing happens, yeah. I mean, still, it's yeah, a th- just chop it off. Yeah, I mean, still, it's a still, it's a third of your total money, but oh, yeah, you know, but yeah, on, a, yeah. on a graph, it looks flat. Yeah, yeah. So my theory was, why not just squash those two exciting periods together and just have a one week <laughs> Kickstarter and see how and see how that works? And um, I've never tried it, but people yeah. do do that now, and they call it Quick Starter, and they run very very short Kickstarters, you know, in and out. No, no, you want to do like lots of free marketing. Yeah like again with that countdown idea and then do the big push yeah. well my well my general my general thing is you announce your kickstarter a month before it's going to launch do a month of marketing it doesn't have to be super heavy but you're going to make sure you're just like plugging it time to time mentioning it from time to time making sure people are aware it's coming make sure the date it's coming is a known factor and things like that. Yes, allow it to permeate people's yeah. consciousness. And then when it actually launches, yeah. then your yeah, yeah, sort of marketing machine, as it were, should be in full gear. You should be sort of like, you know, if you can, you should be like sending out previews to websites. And um, I'll tell you, as one of those websites, you know, just sending us a link and a blurb isn't really interesting to anybody. Send out an exclusive preview. We'll probably share that. That's interesting. Like, what are you looking for? Like, do you want a full PDF? Do you want... Uh, so what I personally uh, like to see, if I get a, if I get an email and it's a link to a Kickstarter and someone's saying, can you help us get the word out? I hit delete. Um, if, well, come on, make an effort. Um, if <laughs> if I get uh, yeah. if, I, if I get an email and they said, okay, um, um, this is an exclusive preview. Uh, this is sort of like, I don't know, the first eight pages of the book or it doesn't even have to be eight pages, two pages, a nice pretty two page spread from the middle of the book, which no one's seen before or something like that. Uh, they give that to something me. newsworthy. Yeah, something interesting. Something, and quite frankly, if uh, if you if you post something on a website, if I post a news item, if it's oh. just a product cover and a blurb, it's basically met with a resounding silence. Met. Yeah, if tumbleweed. Like- if you post something, if you post an actual preview, you know, an exclusive yeah. preview of something with some stuff that people can sort of like get their teeth into, you usually oh. tend to get some discussion around that. You tend to get more of a bite. So you know, it's it's, it's definitely in the sort of uh, marketers' interest to make sure that what they're sending out to uh, sites is content that they can use to actually generate a decent news article. 
And a decent news article isn't a product blurb. That's, that's, that's an advert. It's a bit like a CV in some respects, in that you should tailor your ad to the company you're sending it sure. to. So if you were to have a look at, say, the in-world style guide, to pick a random example, and say, well, this is the sort of thing they'd like to see, and write something like that yeah. before sending it out, that's 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 going to help. Yeah. Because the less work you have to do, the well, better. Certainly. I mean, I've been on the other end of that as well. I've had to like contact mm-hmm. sites like Geek and Sundry and stuff and ask if they're mm-hmm. willing to sort of um, show a preview and things. And sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no, depending on, you know, what they've got lined up over the next month or so and you know what they're focusing on at the moment and who they've got available to do it and all this sort of stuff or whether they're interested sometimes they're just eh, not that interested in that and stuff like that um so i've been on the other end of that and i know that um yeah you definitely need to sort of um tailor your approach to different places like geek and sundry is a very 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 positive site um so they're not they're not they're not sort of there to sort of do uh, an insightful review of your product but what they will do is talk about what they love about your product which is you know one of the reasons I think they're probably they're so successful because it's you know they're generally quite a pleasure to read. Marketing, yeah. Make sure you start it a month beforehand at least. Make sure the Kickstarter launch date is known in advance. When the Kickstarter starts, you're marketing it as a full. That is now your full time job for the next month. Your editor Daryl here with a quick reminder about our Patreon. Over at patreon.com slash morris, you can help support the show and get access to an exclusive episode of Deleted Scenes every week. This week, oh boy, there were a lot of tangents. Yodeling, Alexa, miniatures, piracy, dropped calls, giant shoulders, Peter caught in a lie, Chinese drink advertorials, and a lot, lot lot more to get access to all the deleted scenes episodes every week subscribe on patreon.com slash morris uh, Russ, yes yes peter is is it time yet do you want it to be time i want it to be time you want it to be we talk about kickstarters for ages well let's play our favorite game in all the world Hey! Uh, what's our favourite game in all the world called? Is it called Guess the Kickstarter, Dal? <laughs> <laughs> Guess the Kickstarter from just the name and nothing else. Of course. Guess the Kickstarter from just the name and nothing else. You know, eventually I'll get that right. Round about the time I start calling this podcast by its proper name of Morris's unofficial tabletop RPG talk. Correct. So you that got right. that right. Ah. Next week, I'll be yodeling it. Please. Please. <laughs> yodel it. Please. I want this now more than I want anything else in the world. Morris on official role-playing game tabletop talk. Oh, Got that wrong. On second thoughts, let's not do that. Is this anything? <laughs> ah, it's a silly place. Let's never return. <laughs> that has to be kept in the podcast. Dungeon Delve, number two, Dungeons of the Dread Worm. I'm going to go out of limb here and say this isn't the latest romantic cyberpunk role-playing game that I had been sort of hoping for. Uh, what what was the name of it again? It was Dungeon Delve. Dungeon Delve. Number two. Yeah. Dungeons. Number two. Of the Dread Worm. Okay. So W-Y-R-M, don't... obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like a proper worm. Mm. As opposed to some sort of giant purple thing. So we're going to go with High Fantasy. Because it's Prince Purple Worm, which means apparently low fantasy means it's like our world but has magic in. Mm. So high fantasy is not like our world but with magic in. And it's part of a series. 
So it sounds like a set of uh, adventures. Hmm. Now the question is, which system is it for? Because the smart money is on fifth level Pathfinder, mm. but I think maybe this is like not. I think maybe it's like for a different system. I don't know. I'm gonna say not fifth level Pathfinder. Mm. Wanting to double down on my failure. You don't. You, you, oh, you don't want to be more specific story. than that. Then, you just. There are quite a lot of things that are not. In yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, OSR. It's not limitations. It's fine. Princess shows the demon lord. Pretty sure. Mm, Dungeon Delve. Is it Hackmaster? Maybe. Mm. It's first edition AD and D, so it's not a million miles off Hackmaster. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a. It's not quite a case of twins, but it's like definitely a body double. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so it's a thirty-two page adventure for first edition AD and D. You know, old school style with the old school sort of blue and white maps and black and white art and stuff like that. Heavy into the nostalgia. I like it. That's yeah. nice. It's a high level adventure for characters level 10 to 15. In this adventure, the adventurers will explore the death trap lair of an infamous red dragon to seek out her fabulous treasure hoard. Mm, nice. That sounds like it would be a good pre-gen for someone. Mm. Right. Okay. So, um, so next, the next one. one. Okay. Oh, uh-huh. interesting. Okay. Oracle Sites. How are you spelling Sites? S-I-G-H-T-S. Mm. This is interesting, actually. I can tell you in advance, you, w- yeah. you will not get this. <laughs> okay, uh, Oracle Sites. I think it is based off a game called Oracle. And I think it, it's a bunch of separate scenarios for the Oracle system. Hmm. I don't think there is an article system, but you know what? I think there is. I don't know. I'm confused. Okay, what is it? You score zero points out of a million for that. Woo! Oracle sites are a handheld projection device for tabletop RPGs. You can't see my face this time. But I'll give you a clue. This is not what Impressed looks like. (laughs) Uh, Oh, God. So it allows you to overlay a range of things like area of effects of spells and traps and stuff onto any map surface without interfering with the miniatures on the table or needing to use square-based flooring. So it's some sort of app for your smartphone or something? No, it's it's like an an object. It looks a little bit like a a torch or something. Um, It comes in a little travel case and then you get a bunch of templates which you attach to this... A torch which has sort of lines, cubes, radiuses, cones, and stuff like that. And then you shine this torch down on the surface, on the table surface, to like illuminate out the area of a spell or a blast radius of a fireball so, or whatever. So when we say torch or flashlight for our American listeners, and then there's some sort of cutout that one would put in front of the bulb mm-hmm. in a Batman esque fashion and then shine it upon the gaming mm-hmm. system. Upon your gaming mm-hmm. table, is is that is my understanding of the matter mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Eldritch Century Monsters Wave One. Oh, isn't this something Angus was quite heavily involved in? I think it's um well, Call of Cthulhu. It sounds like the a role playing game. I think with some tabletop elements that I could just be making that up. Uh, throwing that in, so you got H.P. Lovecraft, sort of nineteen twenties era. And this sounds like it's a monster manual or something similar. It says it's a multi-platform approach with skirmish miniature games, board games, fictions, and a tabletop RPG. Uh, but this particular campaign is for a series of miniatures of, you know, those weird sort of, you know, eldritch monsters and creatures, basically. So it's provided... 
so it's not so much a monster manual, but like providing you with what the pawns miniatures, yeah. Well, I presume it must be giving the stats for them as well. Okay, yeah. Mm. So yeah, that's pretty much bang on. But I suppose uh, that's the advantage of actually knowing. Andy's. I suppose, yeah. <laughs> It'll pop up in my feed occasionally. Okay, next one. <laughs> Over <laughs> the edge, a role-playing game of weird urban danger. Ooh, I'm guessing something like being human or something. Similar, where you've got, I don't know, the standard... Isn't it strange? It's just become standard now. Werewolves and vampires and ghosts, <laughs> oh my. <laughs> that, that seems like an everyday thing we should have in our lives. Uh, <laughs> I'm not complaining, it's just weird to me. It's standard. And over the edge, so... Uh, I guess a game of slightly less than cosmic horror about identity and what happens when you become one of these... Strange and unusual toothsome things that go bump in the night. Mm. So, uh, the setting of Over the Edge, it's um, a fictional modern-day island. It's called Al-Amaja in the Atlantic Ocean. And it uh, it says here it's home to uh, the weirdest city in the world called The Edge. And this city's filled with conspiracies, paranormal entities, mad scientists and secret agents... And it's the front line for the last war, a conflict that rages unseen and unknown to most of its inhabitants. You know what? I like it. It's ambitious. It's renamed an entire country and it's going hell for leather and saying, yeah, we don't care. We're just going to do all sorts. Mm. Pixies and Nixies and Silkies and Selkies, Bogarts and other things that go bump in the night. We're going to go double down, make it all Mm. happen. Love it. So that's uh, that's the podcast over for yet another week. Um, thank you so much for listening. And I'm not yes, sure whether that noise was um, Peter or it's a noise. It's a or whether it was my dog. One of the two. It's <laughs> That was me as well. Sorry. <laughs> thank you for listening. And uh, this is goodbye from me, Russ, who you can find on Twitter at Morris. As goodbye from me, Peter, who you can find at southampton.guild.gmail.com. Goodbye until next week. Bye-bye.